0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Against flaring lights and background music of grinding strings, the shaven-headed sheriff patrols his neighborhood. His steely eyes in the rearview mirror scan for ne'er-do-wells. I've seen all kinds of gun crimes, he drawls. It's a campaign ad paid for by a candidate who promises to raise police wages and defend against a politics of dangerous extremes that would make the streets less safe. But this candidate has so far been better known for her campaign against voter suppression than for her law and order credentials. Stacey Abrams, running for governor of Georgia, is one of a flurry of prominent Democrats, including Tim Ryan in Ohio and Val Demings in Florida, embracing a public safety message after criticisms, the progressive wing of the party has undermined law enforcement and ignored public concerns over violent crime. And last week, President Biden joined the fray with his Safer America plan, a $37 billion project to put 100,000 more police officers on the streets over five years. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, has America passed peak progressive? The Democratic Party is in the throes of a rude awakening its grand legislative ambitions have had to be scaled back again and again. A flurry of recent deal-making in Congress bears little resemblance to Joe Biden's original promises. Most of these initiatives sit squarely in the pro-business centre. And at state level, some of the most progressive programmes are even going into reverse. How did the party lose touch with its voters? And can it moderate in time to avoid electoral disaster? With me to discuss whether the Democrats have scaled peak progressive and are now coming down the other side of the mountain are Idris in Washington and Charlotte in New York. Idris, what is going on in Washington? Congress seems to be doing things. This is a narrative violation. We have the CHIPS Act, you know, the Electoral Count Act looks like it might get passed, the renamed Build Back Better now called the Inflation Reduction Act. There seems to be a deal on that. What's going on here?
2: There's a lot going on. You know, Democrats seem to have struck a deal on climate after everyone thought that that was dead. And, you know, they managed to also pass this industrial policy bill to subsidize the semiconductor industry, which had been stalled also for about a year. So it's a big week for them. But, you know, as anyone who has followed this closely over the last almost 18 months will know... Uh, there are good weeks and there are bad weeks, so uh, I don't think that we're quite at the end of it yet.
3: I felt like with the news that Mansion had agreed to some pretty big climate provisions with Schumer, I felt like one of those cartoon characters whose head spins around twenty times really quickly and then lands looking confused. That was a real surprise to me. I had been receiving some truly dismayed emails from various people in the clean energy industry over the past few weeks about the state of, of climate provision. So it felt like a big week to me.
1: And Charlotte, how are things in New York with you apart from your inbox making your head spin?
3: All's well in New York. My daughter learned to walk. So in addition to a huge week in Washington, it was a pretty big week in our household.
1: That is big news. Idris, we're really going to hand you the keys to this episode because you wrote a cover story recently for The Economist about peak progressive and the state of the Democratic Party at the moment. So who do you think we should listen to first if we want to understand what's happened to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and its its dreams of remaking
2: America? Thanks, Dad. I'll try not to crash the car. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in the past few weeks, I've been talking to uh, progressive and centrist lawmakers on the Hill and trying to gauge how they view the legislative achievements of this administration. And one of them is, perhaps the most important of them, is uh, Pramila Jayapal, who chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And she told me that even for her, a much more slimmed-down bill, like the one that we've been talking about in Washington, shouldn't be viewed as a defeat.
4: It's not going to be the full, expansive bill that we passed in the House. Everybody understands that. However... The work that we did in the House on Build Back Better says that anything that doesn't get passed in a reconciliation bill this year with two more Democrats, we could pass it next year. The narrative has shifted about what people deserve in America. And I think 99.9 percent of Democrats are with us. And I think that is a really important we shouldn't take the failure of Build Back Better to be the failure of our progressive agenda or even success on moving our progressive agenda, because it has moved so far that we literally are down one or two, depending on how, you know, depending on what aspects, one or two votes in the Senate.
2: She's really looking beyond November and is resolute that the progressive agenda is going to live on uh, past the midterm elections. And she also thinks that the Democratic Party that emerges from this year, which is expected not to be a very good one for them, is actually going to be more progressive than the current lineup.
4: If you look at the populist policies that um, are resonating and that are actually still the things the president is pushing for and still the majority of the party is pushing for, they're extremely progressive. Everyone is still for a $15 minimum wage. By the way, that was not true even four or six years ago. Everyone believes we need to take on the cost of prescription drugs. Everyone believes that we need to uh, invest in a greener economy. Maybe they're not fully on board for ending fossil fuels by 2024, but they absolutely are on board for moving to a renewable energy economy. It really is, I think we need to distinguish between the inability to pass something in the Senate versus where the country is. The country is still very much with us on progressive policies. And I think the challenge has been, we need one or two more votes in the Senate to be able to take on the institutional failing of the Senate given the filibuster. And by the way, I I also think that we're going to win more seats uh, for progressives in the House regardless of what happens. And you also see some of the best pickups in the Senate are candidates who are running on extremely progressive platforms like John Fetterman and Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. These, these people are running on very progressive platforms, very populist platforms, and they are some of the best pickup opportunities for us.
2: I asked her where those pickups were going to come from, um, whether it was a matter of winning over the swing voters um, in states or turning out people who hadn't participated in elections before. Uh, her answer was a bit of both.
4: You know, when we talk about swing voters in the Democratic Party, it's often the maybe suburban mom, white voter you know, suburban area. And we definitely need those voters. But we also have to remember that the ultimate swing voter is also our base voter, our voter of color, young, progressive, black, brown, indigenous, perhaps poor, living below the poverty line, unable to really think about voting. We know that they're not going to vote for Republicans, but they may not swing to Republicans, but they will swing to the couch. They will not vote. And so we cannot afford that to happen. And so I think we really need to start redefining what we mean by swing voter and also pay attention to these very progressive young voters of color who we just don't talk to enough.
1: Idris, listening to Representative Jayapal there, I mean, she sounds pretty sensible and also happy to compromise. I mean, not really the sort of caricature of the diehard socialist progressive member of the Democratic Party that, that you might expect, you know, if you get your news from, you know, elsewhere. What did you make of her when you interviewed her?
2: You know, I think she is more sensible and more pragmatic than certainly the more doctrinaire members of the progressive caucus. Um, the ones that you hear about—Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Cory Bush—you know, those sorts of people. I think are quite focused on messaging, and uh, Jai Paul has been very involved in actually legislating and, and getting together the packages that are that are going to be passed. But. Um, you know, one thing that, that she says and that other people say to me as well is that even though they haven't had as much success as they would have liked, they've really won the narrative war within the Democratic Party, and I think that you see that. And it's not just on issues of economics; that's those are the things that she's in twenty twenty two going to be touting because they're the most popular. But um, if you if we look back to twenty twenty um, and if you guys remember the the primary that we had then, the progressive wing was really determining the direction of the party. And a lot of ideas that I think proved to be unworkable, like defunding the police, entered the mainstream of of democratic dialogue. And that's something that the party has really found hard to come back from. And if we look now, one one of the reasons that I wrote this piece was that it, it looks like Republicans are going to be vindicated for basically not repudiating Donald Trump. And how is it that their agenda is is likely to to win at least one chamber of the of the congress to come and i think a lot of it is their attacks on on progressives which seem to resonate with voters on matters of policing crime education socialism border etc for whatever reason the democrats i think are losing the culture wars and it's important to figure out why.
3: I want to just follow up on that, Idris, because one of the things that I found most interesting in what she discussed is this idea of a swing voter, the idea that we should think about the swing voter, not just as someone in the middle who might vote for Republicans, but someone in the base who might stay home. And so that's a pretty interesting argument. And I think whether it holds water depends on how you think about the size of these different groups, right? I mean, so there was data that Pew put out, breaking down the Democratic Party into different factions. And those who are most progressive are a pretty small share of the party. More than half fall into the center, and then you have different people on the fringes. But- it's very clear that the progressive wing, in terms of numbers, is a smaller share of the party. Is there evidence that it's really important to try to mobilize that base? Or do the people in the middle, the people who are moderate, are they the people who come to the polls? How tactically should Democrats think about that math?
2: So progressives are highly engaged politically, highly educated, and highly overrepresented on Twitter. And I think that that is part of what is going on here there's a there's a progressive wing which we all know and love and large normy ballast to the democratic party which we tend to ignore the idea that progressives have is that it's it's going to next year is going to be just like 2008 we're going to get the obama coalition back Together, um, we're going to get Hispanics and, and, and African Americans and young people, and we're going to get these huge, crushing majorities. And they've been hoping for 2008 since 2008, and it hasn't quite materialized. And one of the best people I can think of to talk to on that point is uh, Elaine K. Mark, who uh, is a senior fellow at the Brook Institution, who has been arguing against uh, what she calls the politics of evasion within the Democratic Party for uh, more than three
5: decades. There still are myths, right? And I think it's hard to let them go because they're in some sense aspirational. It's what Democrats want to to be the case, but simply isn't. Um, So let's start with the myth of all people of color think the same way. Uh, It's simply not true. Yes, America is becoming increasingly a non-white country, but there's a lot of evidence that Hispanics, the largest and fastest growing group, is in fact not uniformly democratic at all. Uh, The second one is there's, there's a myth that somehow the country has become socially liberal and progressive. It's not the case. In fact, of the wealthy countries in the world, it's the most religious country in the world. And so lots of the things that Democrats champion frankly, just don't get a great deal of attention or sympathy from the vast majority of Americans. First front and center in the last election was this saying or this slogan that became popular to defund the police. Now, the the roots of that were, were, were in fact, quite genuine. That was a good, solid public policy reform instinct. Somehow it got turned into defund the police, And, gee, right at the time when crime started to rise. Congressman Clyburn, who's in the leadership in the House of Representatives, says that it cost us 14 seats, 14 Democratic seats in the last election. That's huge. And then finally is this notion that all we need to do is turn out the base. The base is simply not big enough. End of sentence. It wasn't big enough 33 years ago. It's not big enough now.
3: Dr. Kimmark said there on policing was really interesting, because if you look beyond policing on a few issues, this holds true as well. I was struck by some of the polling on Democrats' view of racism and the degree of intervention that is required. So if you look in the breakdown that Pew had, 71% of those on the progressive left think that laws and institutions need to be completely overhauled to deal with racism. But among the bulk of the party, it's a much more moderate view. About half the share of people within the larger group of people who comprise the center think that laws and institutions need to be completely overhauled. I was also struck that on some issues, views of illegal immigration, for instance. The general population of Americans writ large is actually closer to the populist right, you know, what people think of as the, the fringe of the Republican Party than the left wing of the Democratic Party.
1: It seems to me that the Democratic Party is actually more centrist than the perception of the Democratic Party, right? I mean, if you look at the polling on this, voters often seem to perceive the party as being further to the left than it actually is. Whereas if you talk to most elected Democratic representatives in Congress or elsewhere, they're not the progressive caucus. You know, they're not the kind of Bernie Sanders wing of the party. So that seems to me to be a big problem for the Democratic Party. It's not obvious to me that the perception reflects the reality.
2: I agree with you. And one thing that I've been dwelling on a lot is uh, polling I saw among Hispanic Americans who have shifted really dramatically towards the right, which is the opposite of what you would have expected, given the Democrats' progressive turn. And more Hispanics say, that they are concerned with Democrats going to left than they are with Republicans veering into anti-democracy and fascism, which is, you know, I think is completely asymmetric. I think that the the problems on the right are much larger than the problems on the left. You know, it's remarkable to me that a majority of Hispanics might think of the Democrats as the more extreme party. That's a stunning kind of fact. It's a sobering fact. I mean, one thing I, I've neglected to mention is progressives are also highly white. They're, they're largely... White folks who are really worried about systemic racism—that's one way to think about them. But um, one of the reasons I wrote this piece was that I think that there is something of a vibe shift in American politics, and and you see that bubbling up in in liberal places. So Minneapolis uh, had a referendum on whether or not to defund the police last year, and it failed. And one of the reasons it failed was because it it had disproportionate lack of support among African-Americans. And recently in San Francisco, we've talked about this on the podcast, but voters there recalled their progressive district attorney because they felt he wasn't doing enough on crime. And a few months before, they recalled three members of their school board of education, who rather than keeping the schools open, decided to rename, you know, schools in in sort of on equity grounds and ignored evidence of, of learning loss. You know, in in practice, I think uh, some of these theories that became popular in 2020 just haven't proven to be successful, um, even in in liberal cities. And in addition to that, I think that they are they are hurting the party nationally, and that's why we see Stacey Abrams touting herself as the law and order candidate rather than you know anything like we saw two years ago. OK, well, in
1: a moment, we'll go back and look at a great example of that kind of course correction by a party leader and listen to what was perhaps the most important speech of Barack Obama's entire political career. But first, the usual reminder to get the full unadulterated economist experience, you'll need to subscribe if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. Charlotte and Idris, what have you particularly enjoyed from the past week's coverage?
3: I want to highlight our, not the past week's coverage, but our coming week's coverage, which is this amazing double issue that we've put out in partnership with 1843, our sister magazine, which has a few fascinating long features. But I would in particular direct our readers to the piece on Mohammed bin Salman by our colleague Nick Pelham, who's covered the Middle East for many years. And it is the most authoritative thing you'll ever read on The prince.
2: I've been really enjoying James Bennett's new Lexes. I think he's four for four on those. Uh, this week's is excellent. It's on the, the gerontocracy in the democratic party. He and I were on the Hill last week together, doing some meetings. And as we were talking about this idea of his column, uh, extremely elderly congressman shuffled past us um, at a snail's face as if to underscore the point yes lex is a lexington columns to the rest of you listeners the economist
1: one of its core beliefs is that you need to give your columns really obscure names and our american political column is called lexington it's excellent and as you say james b is doing a great job there economist.com slash us pod is the link to subscribe you'll find that in the notes for this episode
6: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Thank you. On March 18, 2008, Senator Barack Obama took the stage looking calm and confident, backed by a row of American flags. The Democratic presidential hopeful had been on a roll. He'd won the Iowa caucuses and the South Carolina primary. But in that moment, it was all on the line. He was about to make a speech he'd been trying to avoid for a year. A speech about race. We the people
6: in order to form a more perfect union.
1: Obama had fought hard not to be defined by race. He hadn't run as what was then called a civil rights candidate, and he'd carefully built a centrist coalition of black and white, urban and rural, northern and southern. But in the spring of 2008, he was in a corner.
6: America's chickens... ..are coming
1: home to roost... We took this country by terror. Videos of sermons by his spiritual advisor, Jeremiah Wright were all over the airwaves. The clips were taken out of context, but the excerpts that played and replayed on every bulletin shocked many of his potential voters. We took
6: Africans from their country to build our way of ease and kept them. In
1: they expressed unsparing criticism of America's violent history and righteous anger the ways it had failed many of its citizens over the centuries.
7: The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God
6: damn America that's in the Bible. Reverend Wright does not speak for me. He
1: does not It was a message profoundly at odds with Obama's message of hope and multiracial harmony.
6: I find these comments
1: uh, appalling. But Obama's attempts to calm the storm only intensified it. His critics gleefully suggested that maybe he too no longer believed in the promise of America. And how could such a man ever become president? So in front of those stars and stripes, Obama went back to the most American, most unifying thing he could think of.
6: We the people in order to form a more perfect union. 221 years ago, in a hall that still stands across the street, a group of men gathered and with these simple words launched America's improbable experiment in democracy.
1: In some ways, the speech was radical. It unflinchingly acknowledged America's original sin of slavery and its bitter legacy of racial inequality.
6: The anger is real. It is powerful.
1: But it was also deeply conservative. In some passages, it seemed to excuse white racial resentment.
6: In fact, a similar anger exists within segments of the white community. Most working and middle-class white Americans don't feel that they've been particularly privileged by their race. Their experience is the immigrant experience. As far as they're concerned, no one handed them anything. They built it from scratch.
1: And rejected the belief that America would always be captured by its past sins.
6: A profoundly distorted view of this country. A view that sees white racism as endemic. And that elevates what is wrong with America above all that we know is right with America.
1: Echoing the rhetoric of another centrist Democrat, Bill Clinton... Obama planted his flag squarely amid the contradiction and compromise of the center ground.
6: We need to come together to solve a set of monumental problems. Two wars, a terrorist threat, a falling economy, a chronic healthcare crisis, and potentially devastating climate change. Problems that are neither black or white or Latino or Asian, but rather problems that confront
1: us all. It was a speech about race, but it was also an explicit call for the politics of unity in the pursuit of gradual but determined progress. That is where perfection begins. Thank you very much, Herbert. Thank you. The room erupted. Thank in you. the earliest days of social media and YouTube, you. his words went viral. Pew Research found that 85% of Americans had heard about it. The speech is generally considered to have saved his campaign. But is it a speech a Democratic candidate could have given today?
6: If I were running today, I wouldn't run the same race or have the same platform as I did in 2008.
1: The world is different. In 2020, when Obama endorsed Joe Biden, he acknowledged that times had changed. And Joe understands
6: that. It's one of the reasons that Joe already has what is the most progressive platform of any major party nominee in history.
1: The contradictory coalition that brought Barack Obama to power has splintered. And Obama has little to show for his huge majorities beyond an incremental reform to healthcare. Many on the left have grown tired of compromise. They want radical transformation. But without that broad coalition, democratic power is fragile. And the task of building a movement that can win majorities... In a system tilted against the Democrats is much, much harder. Idris, I think it's not generally appreciated the degree to which Joe Biden ran to the left of Barack Obama and maybe even to the left of Hillary Clinton as well, where Clinton ran in 2016. Do you think Joe Biden could give a similar speech to that Barack Obama speech? Or do you think
2: it would be too right wing really for the Democratic Party these days? I think that if Joe Biden gave a speech saying that the view that white racism is endemic elevates what is wrong about America above what is right about America, he'd be denounced as a Republican and, and possibly wouldn't have won his primary in 2020. I think you're right. Biden has run significantly to the left of Obama, not only on matters of race, which is interesting given their respective races, but also on issues like healthcare and climate and and basically any issue you can think of. And the reason for that is not so much, I think, that uh, Joe Biden is personally a deep progressive, but I think throughout his entire career, he's always been essentially a, a barometer for the median Democratic voter, what he perceives the median Democratic voter to be. This is a guy who, as Kamala Harris pointed out in the debates previously opposed mandatory busing in the 1970s when he started his political career. So he's moved with the tides. And that, I think, is a useful way of seeing the evolution of the party, not just over the last 40 years, but also over the last 10, even.
3: Yeah. Two things on that, Idris. I was struck in some of the polling that looks at Democrats' views over time, that there was a big uptick in support For government intervention to deal with racism and a surge in support on immigration. And that predated President Trump and was driven mostly within the left part of the party. So it was basically those who were further to the left within the party becoming much more strident in their views on those two particular issues. So I was kind of struck by that, the degree to which this is driven by those on the left changing views within that faction of the Democrats, and in particular by views among college-educated Democrats. And then the second thing I wanted to raise and also ask you both about is that the share of Democrats who say the party is too liberal has ticked up, according to a morning consult poll, but it's still a relatively small share. And the people who are most concerned about this are suburban Democrats, who are, of course, electorally very important to the Democratic Party. But writ large, actually, it seemed to me a pretty small share of Democrats within the party who thought the progressives had gone too far. So what do you make of those stats?
2: So I think you have to keep in mind that the party has changed a lot. So the party has increasingly become the party of the college educated. And so that compositional shift might mean that among you know, the increasingly educated, uh, the party doesn't seem too liberal. Whereas if you try to contrast the party stances from 10 years ago or 12 years ago with the contemporary stances that it takes, you'd obviously see a, a big difference. And this, I think, corroborates the, the economist Thomas Piketty Um, has put out this really interesting theory that he's observed across uh, Western democracies where the left is increasingly becoming what he calls the Brahmin left of the highly educated and the right is becoming what he calls the merchant right of the wealthy. And he sees this divergence in in the UK. Um, He sees it in France, where people who haven't been champions because of globalization are increasingly turning to the right wing. And you see that within the Democratic Party as well. And, and you know, you see working class Americans abandoning the party for Donald Trump, you see Hispanics uh, shifting pretty dramatically over towards Donald Trump. And there's some sign also of African American support going to Trump as well, which is the opposite of what you would have expected given the progressive turn and also given Trump's racist rhetoric at times. I think if you take the long view of what's
1: happened to the Democratic Party since Barack Obama's presidency, I mean, the Democrats were already heading leftwards a bit after 2012, after Barack Obama's re-election. I think frustrated with the slow pace of progress, as they saw it in America, and the you know inability to get a lot of stuff done after the Affordable Care Act, which in any case was a kind of fairly partial reform of American healthcare. And then you get a real acceleration of the move leftwards with Donald Trump. I think The degree to which Donald Trump changed the Democratic Party is maybe not appreciated as much as it should be. I mean, if you look at the share of Democrats who describe themselves as liberal and share who describe themselves as moderate, it increases dramatically from 2016 onwards. And so I think Donald Trump is a big part of that. It's a different party to the party it was you know, a decade ago. And as Idris says, part of that reflects compositional effects, reflects the fact that the party's just supercharged its appeal to college-educated white voters. And those folks in turn seem to, you know, dominate the party's activist wing. And that's a real problem for the party, right? Because they're not representative of the country as a whole. And perhaps, you know, more importantly, in terms of electoral math, there just aren't enough of them to build a winning coalition on. Okay, we will be back in a moment to ask what kind of democratic platform might actually work for the party in November and beyond.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: Idris, one of the hopeful things I took from your great piece about the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is that it does seem that a course correction is underway, and the Democratic Party is taking a turn back towards the center.
2: I think you could definitely feel the rhetoric shifting. And one of the people who I spoke to for this piece that I think epitomized that was Ro Khanna. He's a Democratic progressive congressman who represents Silicon Valley, and he actually co-chaired Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2020. He thinks that the Democratic Party is only belatedly waking up to the demographic challenge that it faces. Um, it needs answers for immigration, increasing diversity, and what to do for the left behind portions of America, uh, problems that it had previously drastically underestimated.
7: In the fact that we're becoming the first truly multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in the world. When my parents came to America, 90% immigration was European. Today, it's less than 15%. What we're trying to do is so difficult; it's never been done before, uh, and so to think that there would be a linear line from Obama to to Hillary Clinton to to you know more diversity, I think, was naive. And in some sense, Trump, I think, was a was signal of of uh, the blind spots uh, that that both parties have. And and one of the things I think Democrats need to do is acknowledge that. Yeah, well. Yes, there's parts of him that are xenophobic and racist, but there's parts of him that spoke to people saying, you deindustrialized industrialized our country, what happened? And I think that the Democrats have to say there is truth to that diagnosis. Here's our plan. Here's why we actually have a better plan for getting uh, those communities revitalized. It's sort of we need to take the storytelling that, that Trump, unfortunately, was good at, and combine it with actual substance.
2: Congressman Kahn and I spoke just after a poll had come out that showed uh, really bad popularity numbers for President Biden. Um, Only a third of voters in that poll said that they approved of his performance, and only 5% of young voters wanted him to be the next candidate in 2024. So I wanted to ask him where he thought President Biden had gone wrong.
7: I think one is being a president is being a storyteller and telling a narrative, and I think that that has gotten uh, away from, from him. I mean, I think the, the narrative that I think was most compelling for him, one was he wasn't going to be Donald Trump and crazy, uh, but the some narrative was he's Scranton Joe, he gets the hollowing out of the middle class, he gets the hollowing out of jobs that have gone offshore, and he's going to rebuild the country, and that was Build Back Better. And somehow that narrative has uh, escaped him. It it became all over the place in terms of... So I think he lost that central narrative. When you look at his speeches in the State of the Union, when he says things like, we need to make things in America, we've got to bring production back, they go the dials are off the charts. And yet I think the speechwriters think maybe it's too cliched or too simple. It's only like two minutes of the, 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 the narrative. I mean, that ought to be... 50-minute speech. And then in that, you should frame everything else. What if he says, the last trade surplus America had was in 1975? By the end of my two terms, we're going to have a trade surplus again. We're going to make things in America. I mean, it's and then you frame the the other issues. Well, to do that, you need women in the workforce and you need child care. To do that, you need to make sure people have the right education. Right. When FDR did the victory of production, he had a lot of social programs. It was all saying we've got to produce things to outcompete Japan and Germany. And I think if we've got to produce things to out China, though subtle, I think, would, would have resonance with Democrats. But I think what it looked like instead was this, here's a wish list of all the, the programs the Democrats want without a coherent strategy of why.
2: I think tracking the production of that narrative shift is incredibly important. Uh, to watch. When I spoke to Elaine K. Mark at Brookings, one thing that we kept coming back to was uh, an issue that often comes up, which is that if you're a devoted progressive, the solution to all the problems in America is just more progressivism. And in this line of thinking, all you need to do is elect one or two more progressive Democratic senators, you eliminate the filibuster, and then you go on into your merry way. Dr. K. Mark argues that if there's going to be a course correction in the Democratic Party, there's really only one way to go about it.
5: Well, it starts with Democratic elected officials repeating time and time again that they are for funding the police. They are not for open borders. They are for um, humane treatment at the borders, which Trump didn't do. But that doesn't mean open borders. In other words, they've got to constantly and constantly push back against this. And the progressives have to give them the room to do that. They can't be in a situation where every time they say, look, we want to fund the police, somebody's calling them a fascist. The other thing is that all Democrats, from the progressives to the most moderate, have to really think about what they say and how this plays with most people in America. Why on earth should the American public be bailing out people who took out money to go to college and not helping people who can't go to college? It just doesn't work. It doesn't work even from a progressive point of view. It's deeply regressive. We know where the swing voters are. They are women in suburban districts in America. There's the coalition that brought Joe Biden to the presidency and finally defeated Donald Trump. But that coalition needs some tending.
1: Idris, there's this never-ending debate that goes on between centrist Democrats like Elaine Mark who think that the left progressive part of the party are a liability, and the progressive wing, who say that the centrist Dems, in fact, are the problem because they never pass anything dramatic enough for voters to notice, and that a properly progressive agenda would increase turnout and lead to Democrats winning big majorities. I'm, I'm with the centrists on this, um, surprise, surprise because i think the turnout argument looks unsupported by the numbers you know if you look at the marginal voter they tend to be low information voters they're not particularly left wing but because it's impossible to prove this case either way really cuz you know what's the counterfactual this argument just continues ad infinitum
2: yeah that's right i think these debates take on this religious tone where the solution for low faith is more religion and there's no falsifiable way out of that circle. And and this dynamic exists on the right as well, right? Between the Paul Ryan types who are too modest and wishy washy and the movement conservatives who want to make America great again. But trying to settle it is important in this case because on the other side of the Democrats losing our Republican Party that still hasn't really disavowed the anti Democratic strain, which I worry is growing. It's not just a sort of Tangle about what tax rates will be or, you know, all these things that certainly matter. But, you know, the stakes feel, at least to a lot of Democrats, quite existential in a way that they haven't for a long time.
3: Yeah, I think it's an important question about tactics in terms of thinking about what feels existential in the short term to voters versus what feels long term existential to people in Washington. And Democrats have to do both. You can't just be the party of principles and democracy unless you show that you can effectively deal with Crime rates in a person's neighborhood and inflation. So you have to seem like you're paying attention to the issues that really matter to people this week, as well as those that matter to the country over the long term. I'm not quite sure the Democrats have handle on it yet.
1: Charlotte, I think you're right about that. But I wonder if it's a lesson that the Democrats in Congress are actually learning. I mean, the rebranding of the big legislative effort as the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which the British ears has a slightly sinister tone. But let's just leave that aside. That
2: suggests more of a focus on pocketbook issues, which is what the Democrats really need to do, is, is coming. I think actually the slimmed down version of Build Back Better, which is now the the IRA, but good, is actually going to be helpful for Democrats if it actually passes. For one, inflation reduction, fairly easy to understand, build back better, unclear what that is or ever was to voters. And a lot of the stuff that it tackles, prescription drugs pricing, increasing tax rates on corporations, help paying for health insurance, all of this stuff is fairly popular, and I think would give Democrats something to campaign on, even as they, they face a pretty brutal election cycle because of inflation and because the president is so unpopular. It also lowers the deficit, right, in theory, if we believe the budget is scoring. So it's kind of small C conservative as far as that goes. Right. And, you know, economists don't really buy the debt hysteria that much, but voters love it. Voters love people who pledge balanced budgets and paying down the debt. I mean you know, this this stuff is, is, is quite popular. You're right. That's maybe the most popular provision of all the ones I've listed.
3: I'd note just on the prescription drug pricing to dwell on that for one second. It used to be that Republicans would be really uniformly against something like that, against Medicare playing a stronger role in lowering drug pricing for consumers. Trump changed that. He was very aggressive in his rhetoric and some of his proposals around lowering drug prices. And it's that kind of policy that expansive version of thinking about Republican policy priorities that helped win some of the lower income voters. So perhaps this is Democrats, you know, trying to see some of those people back. But I just wonder whether some of these steps that Democrats are taking now will feel like too little too late, particularly for this cycle, maybe not for 2024, but maybe for this one.
2: I I think you're right. I think that it might be too little too late uh, for 2022. But obviously, we are under the shadow of a looming gerontocratic rematch between joe biden and, and donald trump in 2024 so i think this sets the uh, initial conditions for uh the godzilla mothra part two <laughs> uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna stop there they, they actually kept i i i wrote something on the mansion schumer thing yesterday and they kept all the Zombie shit that I put in there, like zombie movies, and I thought they were <laughs> kinda, maybe it was too late. Be careful
1: what you fall. Assuming your editor will take it out. You just one last thing for me on all of this, which is that it's of course possible in this never-ending argument between centrists and progressives in the party that the progressives conclude from an electoral defeat in November that the problem is the party was not progressive enough, and you know Joe Biden should have headed farther left.
2: That is almost certainly going to be their take. <laughs> it, it's like religion—you just didn't pray enough, <laughs> I think.
1: Okay, before I let the two of you go, it's quiz time. The idea of progressivism in something at least partially resembling the modern sense emerged at the end of the 19th century. In the 1912 presidential election, all three serious contenders claimed to be progressive. But reporting from the campaign trail, the Economist's correspondent at the time had clearly already picked a favourite. Woodrow Wilson, he wrote, had, quote, a gift for kindling enthusiasm in an American audience. He does not stoop to curry favor with the mob by low slang, showing the kind of incisive campaign reporting that The Economist was famous <laughs> for in, in 1912. Question one, after winning the election in a landslide, what annual presidential tradition did President Wilson resuscitate after almost 100 years out of use?
3: The inaugural speech? He, I,
2: he started giving the State of the Union physically to Congress rather than sending a letter, is the right answer. Thomas Jefferson had discontinued the practice
1: of giving the address in person because he thought it was a bit too monarchical. So for more than a century, it was sent as a written message instead. Wilson gave it in person. So one point to Idris, congratulations. The main rivals for the 1912 presidential election were Wilson for the Democrats, William Howard Taft for the Republicans, and Teddy Roosevelt for the brand new Progressive Party. What animal? did the Progressive Party choose as a mascot to square up to the Republican elephant and the Democratic donkey?
3: What was that the weird dog? Moose. It was a moose? Is that right, Idris?
2: A bull moose, like Teddy. Right,
3: right, What right, were you right, going right. to say,
2: Charlotte, about a weird dog?
3: There was some <laughs> animal that we were talking about that Teddy Roosevelt shot when he was in Africa, an aardvark. Oh, you pronounce it an aardvark.
1: Oh. <laughs> My pronunciation of everything is weird. Uh, he shot almost everything, as far as I can see, in- including humans, but... um Pretty much every animal he shot, apart from famously the the teddy bear.
3: Anyway, I was just hoping that you would say that word again.
1: You get null point, but I will say aardvark for you again. Thank you. That's two points to Idris. Roosevelt apparently boasted that he felt as strong as a bull moose after losing the Republican nomination in June 1912. There was even an election song written, donkey, moose, or elephant. The donkey, moose, and elephant are marching down the lane, the elephant in the rear, the donkey, just the same. Tis Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, or Teddy, Wilson, Taft. The last two of the candidates will surely finish last.
2: Music has advanced over the last hundred years. <laughs> yes.
3: Moose are pretty mean. They're nasty. You don't want to run into one.
2: Idris, have you ever had a moose encounter? No, I don't think so. Camels are jerks, too. I mean, they just, they suck.
3: I mean, I would be grumpy if I were a camel. Why? It's hugely hot. They have to carry all this stuff. I mean, it just seems kind of miz.
2: They have great eyelashes, though, to keep all the sand out. Our producer, Amika, has just told us that in Qatar,
1: they have camel beauty competitions and use Botox and other kind of surgical procedures to enhance your camel's chances of winning.
3: I am really floored by that. I feel like, drop the mic, head out.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This episode was produced by Emika Shortino-Nolanchi of The Camel Facts, with research by Elizabeth Pete. Our sound engineer is Tom Birchall, and the musician is Harry Style. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and review. We're still some distance away from getting the number of reviews that we need to compel Charlotte to do a TikTok dance explaining inflation expectations. So please do keep hitting those star ratings. We'll get there eventually. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. The donkey, moose and
0: elephant Are marching down the lane The elephant in the rear Will be the donkey just the same
1: The Harvard, Yale and Princeton Or Teddy Wilson top The last two of the candidates will surely finish last.